What does the failure of Theresa May's Brexit deal mean for UK politics and for the future of the region? Will the treaty to be signed in Aachen on January 22nd serve as a step in the direction of EU military integration? What distinguishes the Yellow Vest protests in France from past protests against austerity in that country and elsewhere in the world? How are the Yellow Vests being undermined by state authorities, and will those authorities prevail in the end? On this week's Global Research News Hour, as the political drama around Brexit plays out in the UK Parliament, we take a look at popular resistance to the European Union as it is playing out in both the United Kingdom and France. In the first part of our show, economist and geopolitical analyst Peter Koenig provides some background on the European Union itself and why it is generating so much popular resistance. In the second half, Diana Johnstone joins us from France to help us understand the yellow vest phenomenon and efforts by the Macron government and the media to suppress it. On this week's program, Vive la Résistance, Brexit, Yellow Vests, and the Fate of the EU. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of January 18th, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegakin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. The crime of attacking another nation maintains an absolutely unaltered legal status whether or not NATO is involved. Yet NATO is used within the U.S. and by other NATO members as cover to wage wars under the pretense that they are somehow more legal or acceptable. This misconception is not the only way in which NATO works against the rule of law. Placing a primarily U.S. war under the banner of NATO also helps to prevent congressional oversight of that war. Placing nuclear weapons in non-nuclear nations in violation of the Non-Proliferation Treaty is also excused with the claim that the nations are NATO members. So what? That comes from the article, Top 10 Reasons Not to Love NATO, by David Swanson, posted January 17th, originally published at the author's blog site, davidswanson.org. On January 7th, a fourth-generation Okinawan-American and local peace groups staged a demonstration and delivered a petition with 190,000 signatures to the White House. The petition calls for a halt of construction of a U.S. airbase at Uruan Bay until the referendum can be held on February 24th. The airbase would build an airstrip by filling in Uruan Bay with boulders and dirt. Two 5,000-foot runways are planned which will eventually house the ultra-advanced U.S. F-35 fighter jets and V-22 tilt-rotor aircraft. The bay is a pristine tropical water paradise and home to many rare aquatic species, including the dugong, an endangered rare marine mammal. 
That comes from the article, Okinawa Activists Petition White House to Stop Military Base Construction by John Zangas, post-January 17th, originally published at DC Media Group. Teacher shortages are most often blamed on low teacher pay, one of the commonalities across teacher strikes. These shortages are arguably exacerbated by an increase in the teacher pay penalty, the term used to describe disparities in teacher salary compared to professions requiring comparable levels of education. At the same time teachers find themselves increasingly undervalued, most states are still funding their public education systems at levels below that of the 2008 recession. This includes California, which is ranked 41st nationwide in per-pupil spending when adjusted for cost of living. As long as public schools remain underfunded, the nation can expect to see more teacher strikes in other school districts and states in the near future. That comes from the article, Three Reasons to Pay Attention to the L.A. Teacher Strike, by Professor Aaron McHenry Sorber, posted January 17th, originally published at theconversation.com. In 2019, People in the U.S. are facing monumental challenges with the longest federal government shutdown in history, the continuing rise in racism and gender-based violence, the threat of another recession due to overproduction, the imposition of tariffs and intensification of labor practices, which is leading to an ever-widening gap between the rich and poor. The Pentagon budget, which Dr. King and others vigorously attacked in the late 1960s, has grown exponentially resulting in hundreds of military bases across the world and the active engagement of U.S. troops in many geopolitical regions throughout Africa, Asia, and Latin America. As Dr. King realized after 1966, there is no fundamental political differences between the Democratic and Republican parties. Both entities represent the capitalist class, which perpetuates national oppression, class divisions, and imperialism around the world. The assassination of Dr. King and a host of other African-American leaders during the 1960s, such as Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, Fred Hampton, the isolation and imprisonment of hundreds of others, and the destruction of people's organizations, had a tremendous impact in stifling the historical trajectory of the revolutionary struggle. That comes from the article, Martin Luther King Commemorations Take Place Amid Government Shutdown and Worsening Capitalist Crisis by Abayomi Azikiwe, posted January 17th. The report has become a key talking point of political progressives in the U.S. who, like journalist and activist Naomi Klein, are now speaking of a terrifying 12 years left in which to cut fossil fuel emissions. There is, however, a problem with even this approach. It assumes that the scientific conclusions in the IPCC report are completely sound. It's well known, however, that there has been a political element built into the IPCC's scientific process based on the urge to get as many countries as possible on board the Paris Climate Agreement and other attempts to rein in climate change. To do that, Such reports tend to use the lowest common denominator in their projections, which makes their science overly conservative, that is, overly optimistic. That comes from the article, A Planet in Crisis, The Heat's on Us, by Dar Jamail, posted January 17th, originally appearing at Tom Dispatch. 
These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Mr. Speaker, the House has spoken and the government will listen. It is clear that the House does not support this deal, but tonight's vote tells us nothing about what it does support. Nothing about how... Nothing about how or even if it intends to honour the decision the British people took in a referendum Parliament decided to hold. And people, particularly EU citizens who've made their home here, and UK citizens living in the EU deserve clarity on these questions as soon as possible. In the United Kingdom, Theresa May's Brexit deal got rejected in a parliamentary vote on Tuesday, January 15th, although she survived a subsequent motion of non-confidence. This is only two months before the United Kingdom is expected to officially leave the Union. The chaotic events spell considerable uncertainty with regard to the circumstances by which the UK will depart from the European Union, or even if the departure will happen, as there has been talk of a second vote on EU membership. Meanwhile, in France, yellow vest protests against austerity measures brought on by the Macron government are into their 10th week and spreading to other EU countries. And a largely underreported story, a treaty between France and Germany that would align the country's diplomatic, economic and military policies is scheduled to be signed on Tuesday, January 22nd. Considerable questions emerge about the fate of the EU and, in fact, the purpose it serves and for whom. To explore these questions, the Global Research News Hour reached out to a prominent writer and thinker who contributes regularly to Global Research and who has recently written an article entitled Europe on the Brink of Collapse. He joined us from Peru. Peter Koenig is an economist and geopolitical analyst. He's also a water resources and environmental specialist. He worked for over 30 years with the World Bank and the World Health Organization around the world in the fields of environment and water. He lectures at universities in the U.S., Europe, and South America. He's the author of Implosion, an economic thriller about war, environmental destruction, and corporate greed, fiction based on facts, and on 30 years of World Bank experience around the globe. He's also a co-author of The World Order and Revolution, Essays from the Resistance, and he is a research associate of the Center for Research on Globalization. Welcome, Peter Koenig. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you for having me. Now, the latest chapter in the Brexit saga played out this past week when Theresa Mays failed spectacularly to get passage in the UK Parliament. Could you comment briefly on what the failure to come up with a deal means after two years of trying and where that leaves the UK and the EU in terms of process? Yes, this is a, a very good question. I think there is no straight answer to it. Uh, I can go maybe a little bit in, into why um, Theresa May uh, may have failed to come up with uh, what the Brits call a better deal. Uh, I, I think one of the reasons is that uh, she basically is an instrument of, uh, of Washington's, and so are the EU. We know that. There are a bunch of vassal states, unfortunately. And, and therefore, 
we never know what happened during the negotiations, during these umpteen negotiations that she carried out with Brussels, what happened behind the closed doors. You know, I, I have a strong impression that, uh, that of course, certainly Washington doesn't want the UK to leave, uh, to leave the EU, nor does Brussels, because they follow the dictate of, uh, of the US, nor does Brussels want them to leave. So the best option not to leave is to come up with a deal or no deal that is unacceptable for the Brits. And the Brits right now, after this uh, vote of uh, non-confidence, which he obviously passed, but uh, without passing uh, her deal or non-deal, whatever you want to call it, with the, e with the EU, leaves the Brits totally divided. I mean, it's a country in, in chaos. And uh, what is easier to manage from outside than a country in chaos? Uh, and so that's where we stand right now. Whether it will eventually result in, in um, new elections, it could be, or, or whether in a new referendum, I think a new referendum may spark actually a, a, a civil upheaval, enormous civil upheaval, because the Brits, more than half of the Brits have uh, decidedly voted to get out. And I think uh, this, during these past two, almost two and a half years of, uh, of negotiation has, uh, has become even stronger the desire to get out of the EU. And so this, this would uh, be would be terrible. Uh, if it would be uh, a new vote after uh, a new uh, prime minister has been sworn in, after new elections possibly, uh, then the whole game would start again. In any case, it is a, it is a chaos and I don't dare to predict what, kind, what, what could come out of, uh, out of it in the end. This opposition to the EU, uh, I mean, th there is a basis for it, and you're seeing uh, displays of uh, resistance uh, across Europe, uh, you know, in France with the Gilets Jaunes, and uh, you know, in Belgium, Italy, Greece. Uh, maybe you could comment on some of the ways in which uh, the people's average lives have been adversely affected by the uh, this new uh, form of governments in the form of this European uh, integration uh, economically and politically? Well, that's exactly the point. There was never really a European integration. Uh, that was a, a false argument and made believe uh, to the European people that uh, with, the, with the common currency, the euro, you could bind Europe together. That's, of course, uh, impossible. Any, any uh, serious economist will tell you that uh, a bunch of countries that have no common constitution, have no common goals, no common vision, no strategy to look forward, no economic strategy or defense strategy, uh, a current currency in such a bunch of country will never work, never, and uh, and this is exactly what happens. So then, the with the with the onset of the uh, the neoliberal uh, onset uh, in in Europe, actually every country, uh, from Germany to Greece and to Italy and uh, the southern countries, but also so to some extent northern countries has, have started to suffer. The people have started to suffer from these neoliberal austerity programs uh, imposed by, by Brussels and, of course, helped by the IMF and, 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 uh, and the uh, Bretton Woods institutions. 
So uh, all of that has brought uh, within the last, uh, I would say, 10 years since the last big crisis, also an artificial crisis, uh, since the last few, uh, crisis has brought uh, Europe in, uh, in upheavals. And, and this is not going to stop. I don't think this is going to stop soon. And uh, it will not stop, I think, until uh, one of the countries, could be Italy, could be even France, uh, or it could be eventually Greece, uh, would uh, drop out of, uh, of the EU or of the currency. I mean, Italy has made strong uh, moves towards uh, wanting to get out of the euro. And if one country gets out of the euro, I think there are there the number of countries that will follow. So uh, I have very, very dim view on, on how the Europe, uh, European Union and the European Communion, especially the euro, is going to survive for the next generation. I don't know when the collapse will happen exactly, but I think it will happen. There is no doubt about it, because all the signals, all the indications are there that it will not be able to, to, uh, to, uh, to survive. And I mean, the, the, the thing is that the, the media, you know, the mainstream media, they do not cover, they do not connect the dots. But if you really look at Europe, there's everywhere, there's uh, discontent, there's different pretexts for discontent. But the basic is the financial system. The financial system, which is totally run by, by banks and uh, by banking oligarchs, uh, those are the ones who have invented the euro, and those are the ones who have actually uh, who are milking Europe to to the bones uh, with the with the with austerity programs. And people start feeling it, and they start just not being happy with it anymore. And they want to get out. They want to get out of this system in one way or another. Whether it will be the gilets jaunes or the the, the yellow vests, or whether it may be Brexit. And Brexit is another very strong case where discontent uh, is uh, is reigning. And in Germany too, I think you have more than 50% of the population who are very unhappy in Germany. There's poverty that nobody talks about it. There's poverty in France, extreme poverty in France, that of course with Macron overshadowing everything with his big words, will never get to the mainstream media. But eventually with the people in the street, this cannot be hidden anymore. And it is not going to be hidden any much longer. So I think there's gonna be uh, there's going to be drastic changes in one way or another. Could you comment then on the the creation of the European Union as an institution itself? I mean, we've all heard about the signing of the Maastricht Treaty in uh, 92 and the changes that flowed from that. But I mean, the origins really go back decades before. So I, I'm, I'm wondering what, what point in that trajectory do you get that imposition of uh, neoliberal uh, structural adjustment uh, programs and uh, you, this, this direction that uh, the, uh, this arrangement has taken? Uh, the European Union was never, never a, a European idea per se. It was an idea that was that came up uh, probably long before this 1957 uh, European Steel Union, in which uh, people say, you know, that the, the, the signing of the Treaty of Rome was the first step towards the European Union. Uh, formally, yes, but uh, informally and in reality, this uh, this idea came up uh, probably during the First World World War already, or or, or maybe even before. And then was uh, was uh, implanted uh, 
in, into the Europeans, into the European uh, um, uh, meetings to, to, to get, for example, into the Steel Union uh, through the CIA and through other U.S. secret services, as they were very good in, in, in doing. So this was never, the EU was never a European idea. It became then one later on, of course, with people being bought and, uh, and, and coerced in, into it. But the original idea was uh, was was not uh, from the Europeans. Now, let me uh, maybe <laughs> go back a little bit even further. Uh, people may recall uh, Churchill's famous speech at the University of Zurich in 1946, when he spoke about uh, Europe, stay auf, meaning get up. And he talked about the United States of Europe. He already then hinted on a, on a common currency within Europe. And indeed, Europe had then soon after the Marshall Plan was implemented, had a common currency, a common reconstruction currency, and that was the US dollar. That was the first step for Europe to get used to having the US dollar as a, uh, as a, a circulating currency within Europe among, uh, among or a sideline perhaps at the beginning uh, of their local currencies. So this is how the whole thing uh, started, at least being uh, planted into into Europe through, I believe, through Churchill's speech. And that came not, of course, uh, out of Churchill's mind at all. Uh, this was a part of, uh, of a much, much larger scheme. Uh, then, uh, as uh, as I mentioned before, you know, then came this 1957 Belgium, France, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, uh, the, the 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 treaty that uh, united the Europe in in uh, in uh, in uh, what is it called in the Steel Union? I, I forgot the abbreviation is ECCS, I believe. Yeah. And and then it became uh, a Europe, eventually the European Economic Community out of out of that. And what did it in, in, include? It included the six countries, exactly these countries that I just mentioned before, which were part of the of the ECSC, uh, the European Steel Union. So from there, then the whole construction over umpteen meetings and conferences and. Uh, and uh, behind the scenes and the openly uh, were discussed until up to the, uh, the 1992 Maastricht Agreement. Then there was an, an, an attempt to, uh, of course, a false attempt to have a European constitution um, uh, written, uh, written in, in such a way that it could never be accepted by Europe but because it would delegate practically of every country, you know, you have to see Europe as a as a as a conglomerate of countries with different cultures, different languages, and different backgrounds to large extents. So it it would delegate practically their autonomy, their sovereignty uh, to Brussels, that constitution. So it was voted out, and that was the idea that you do not have a European constitution because within the, with the European constitution, the Europe could indeed Europe could indeed become a United States of Europe, which would be one block, one economic block and a huge threat to the United States. So that was not desired. So, you know, and uh, and that's how it uh, how it went on. The European currency, the euro was anyway implanted and was uh, was uh, was decided on already, I think, in 1997 as a virtual currency and became uh, a real currency. Um, uh, a real fiat currency, so to speak, in 2001. Now, there's uh, recent news of uh, a, a, military, a, a, 
alignment between France and Germany uh, along economic, diplomatic, and uh, military uh, lines. It's uh, gonna, uh, a treaty that's going to be signed by the French and German leaders on Tuesday the 22nd in Aachen. And I was wondering if you could comment on what that, uh, the, the significance of that in terms of uh, the larger EU and, and whether this might be some sort of, a, I don't know, an incubator for a larger in military uh, integration among the EU states. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, this is a, a very good point because Aachen, as you know, uh, was the, the capital of Charlemagne, the ancient Frankish empire, uh, which uh, this, uh, this emperor tried to reincarnate the Roman one, the Roman empire. So uh, uh, his kingdom at that time, and that's why the, this Aachen meeting, that forthcoming Aachen meeting is, uh, is, is very symbolic, his kingdom at that, that time encompassed more or less the original uh, was much larger, but encompassed all these original six uh, European EU uh, member countries: uh, the, you know, Belgium, France, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and at that time, uh, West West Germany. Uh, so, yes, it could indeed mean that there's much more behind it, because if you if you look at the situation of uh, Germany. Their relationship, Germany and uh, and France, has uh, is 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 at the very low web at this time. You know, it it has uh, lost a lot of luster within the last uh, few years, and especially during during the Emperor Macron's uh, year and a half in power. Uh, you know, they have different policies. Macron tries to uh, uh, overwhelm Germany with the, with the European budget, which is unacceptable. Germany rejected it. And then you have, of course, a totally different uh, uh, immigration policy between, uh, between Germany and France. And so there's really not much left in common. So this meeting is, could indeed be uh, the focus of... Uh, uh, of, a, of a new military alliance between Germany and France and eventually the rest of what what will be left or what they hope will be left of uh, of Europe. And why do I say that? Because there is, since I think about uh, two years or so, maybe a little bit more, there is in Saxon, Saxony-Anhalt, uh, that's uh, north in northeastern Germany, east of Hamburg, uh, there's a, a military base, uh, uh, a German military base with the help of NATO being built for urban warfare training. It's really a training camp for urban warfare. Why would Europe need a training camp for urban warfare if they wouldn't expect upheavals that you may see uh, in the case of Brexit, we don't know yet, that you have seen already in, in Greece and that you may see more of in Greece and that may happen in Italy. Uh, and uh, in in all those cities in Hungary, for example, or in Poland, even those cities which are these uh, countries which are totally uh, on the right, you know, all these uh, upheavals, these civil uh, upheavals, must be oppressed. I mean, Macron is the best example with the with the gilets jaunes on uh, on how to oppress uh, people and suppress the the actually peaceful peaceful demonstrations. 
So, yes, I think uh, this may really uh, be about the military integration rather than, uh, than another, uh, another integration. A military integration to further uh, suppress uh, people's uh, civil, uh, uh, civil revolutions, as, the, as I would call the, the, the Yellow West, the revolution. So, yes, I think it goes into that, into that direction of, um, of a military integration rather than another integration, an economic integration. I think, I mean, you don't have to be uh, really, it doesn't take rocket science to, to, to uh, see that the, that the euro and, and this uh, debt-driven uh, Western dollar-based economic uh, system or financial system must collapse one of these days. And if... This is another subject, but uh, if you look into really what happens to the dollar and uh, the euro is just a small brother, the smaller brother of the of the dollar, then you can you can see that the that the end is in sight. And so, a military integration that would oppress any civil unrest uh, is, of course, the next step, which is planned. Also, of course, helped by NATO. Well, uh, Peter Koenig, uh, these uh, events over the last week and uh, ongoing. Uh, both in Britain and France and elsewhere, are really have reverberating around the globe. So I, I want to thank you for sharing your perspectives with our audience, and I hope we can resume this conversation at a later point. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Michael. We've been speaking with Peter Koenig, economist and geopolitical analyst. He is a research associate of the Center for Research on Globalization. He joined us from Peru. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. The Gilets Jaunes, or Yellow Vest Movement, has mobilized French citizens by the hundreds of thousands. As of November 17th, participants throughout France have been out every Saturday taking part in peaceful demonstrations, constructing barricades and blocking roads and fuel depots. They've enjoyed the support of the majority of the French population, but have faced criticism from media and state authorities. Ten civilians are known to have died and nearly 3,000 injured since the protests erupted. Who are the people behind the demonstrations and what are they likely to achieve? The Global Research News Hour got hold of an analyst who is resident in France who has been watching the movement very closely to get her take. Diana Johnstone is an American political writer based in Paris, best known for her book Fool's Crusade, Yugoslavia, NATO, and Western Delusions. Uh, Johnstone is also the author of Queen of Chaos, The Misadventures of Hillary Clinton. Diana Johnstone is a past guest of the Global Research News Hour and a research associate of the Center for Research on Globalization. Welcome back to the program, Diana. Well, thank you for inviting me. Hello. Now, uh, we're talking about the, the gilets jaunes, the yellow vests, and uh, this, uh, well, the, the, the roots of this go back uh, to May, as I understand it. It started with a petition, but it really started to gain force in mid-November. And uh, as I understand it, the, uh, it, it really was the, the trigger for the movement was the hike in fuel taxes. But what, what can you tell us about exactly who is involved in the movement and, and why the protest took the form that it did? Well, I would say that just about anybody or everybody is in the movement because it's just people, right? 
that category, uh, which is forgotten with identity politics. You know, everybody has to be classified as something. This is people, right? <laughs> just ordinary people, all kinds of, uh, of people. And they're just fed up with, um, with, with a government that seems to not care about them at all as things get worse, you see, economically and, and just psychologically. Just, just, uh, there, there's, a, there's just a feeling that, uh, th- that uh, there isn't any democracy working, and this is sort of the, of the revolt in favor of the restoration of some kind, perhaps a new kind of, of democracy. Hmm. Well, maybe just help our, our listeners understand, and, and I mean, you, you kind of have a front row seat to a lot of this, just what kinds of changes have people seen in, in recent years, just in terms of the, 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 their, uh, what they've had to experience in their lives? Well, uh, for one thing, I mean, one can, it, I know Macron is saying, well, but France is a very well-off society. That's really not the point. The point is not whether it isn't that people revolt because they're poor. They revolt because they're getting poorer. <laughs> you see what I mean? I mean, there are millions of people in the world, and they're in bad situations. But what happens is when you have a good standard of living, and it's just being taken away from you in various ways. Now, this is particularly a revolt of the people in smaller cities, smaller towns, villages, um, who have been really neglected by recent governments. I mean, not only Macron, he's just accelerated the process. And um, the fuel tax business came up simply because it was a last straw. Um, it was a last straw of, of, uh, of measures that seemed to have no concern for ordinary people. But, of course, when there's a last straw, then you find there's a whole lot of other straws underneath. You see what I mean, and so there's a whole heap of issues that come up, but but this was because um, the the, uh, the in the rural areas there has been a decline of services. They've been shutting down post office, shutting down hospitals, so people have to go farther to get to the hospital. Uh, the shops are closing, and you have to go to a, a um, supermarket in the country. So people have been forced more and more into their cars, whether they like it or not. Um, and at the same time, uh, the government is telling them, oh, no, naughty, naughty, mustn't use gasoline. We'll hike up the price. Um, and this is just another example of the very contemptuous way that this um, establishment uh, treats people, telling them what they should do, what they should think, without consulting them. And you see, this is particularly uh, the hike in prices of particularly diesel fuel. And this is very annoying because for years the French government has been promoting diesel and telling people to buy diesel car- cars to use diesel. And all of a sudden the government turns around and says, no, 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 that you shouldn't be doing that, um, and make them pay for it. And the money, by the way, for this taxes was not earmarked for, for ecological purposes, but simply another me- means of squeezing the public to um, meet the budget de- deficit. So it's not an echo tax. It's simply a tax on fuel that people use. And it, it just, I say, it was just a straw uh, after a lot of straws, that um, that uh, 
angered people, and it just has grown and grown. Mm. Now, this group, uh, it's leaderless, or so we're told, and yet they have tabled specific demands, uh, a number of them, beyond the uh, the issue of the fuel tax. Um, c- could you maybe explain just how are they able to logistically arrive at a common program? Well, uh, right now it's just they throw up every everything uh, with the idea that you have to sort it out later. Um, as I wrote in my last article, there's a plan for a meeting next week of various um, village uh, groups. You know, people are getting together and talking, and then they're going to start getting together in assemblies and talking some more. But precisely because there are a lot of issues, and they haven't really decided that they're demanding this or that, but there are a lot of things up in the air, um, the number one demand has become the uh, Citizens' Initiative referendum so that you can uh, solve these issues by a popular vote. And a Citizens' Initiative referendum means that a large number of people, you have have to decide that, uh, you have a new law for that, to to have, um, uh, uh, say, 700,000 or a million people signing a, a, a petition, then you can have a referendum on that issue. Instead of, as now, the only referendums, and they're very rare, practically none, uh, are instituted by the government itself when it feels it's going to have an, it wants to get public approval for something it's decided to do. But this would be uh, to raise uh, issues that people are concerned about. And this concern for the referendum goes back to the to 2005, which you could really say, you could really say that this, the roots of this movement are in 2005 because President Chirac called a referendum uh, on the new European Constitution. He called it because he was sure that with all the politicians and media saying how wonderful this was, that it would pass, and he could say, you know, the people are for it, but they weren't. And that led to huge discussions all over France of people who actually read this horrible document. It was very long and legalistic and so on. And I mean, I went to several of these groups. The citizen, you know, neighborhood groups would get together and discuss this document and come up with a conclusion that they didn't like it. And so 55% of French voted against it. And what did the government do? It simply went a couple of years, and then, and then the assembly, the, the representatives, voted an identical document with a different name. And so that has made people absolutely distrustful of the politicians, because they, in that case, they absolutely clearly went against the popular will. Mm. I wonder if you could comment on... Um some of the differences between these uh, manifestations, the, the, these protests, and uh, the uh, the protests we saw a couple of decades ago around the you know anti-globalization and uh, you know neoliberalism at that time, because it sounds like there's definitely some overlap here. Well, uh, actually, there 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 may be, but uh, it 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 didn't. It started really with with very domestic issues. Um, of course, implied in that is 
is the whole globalization thing. And I think as the movement goes on and people discuss, it's a great discussion movement. I mean, these supposed demonstrations are not so much demonstrations as gatherings. People get together and they talk. I mean, even if they're uh, in a main street or a main square or something, it's a huge amount of exchange of, of, of thoughts and ideas. And I, I, it's, certain things are going to come out of this just because they have to, because they have to sort of realize that these policies are um, a product of globalization in the, ter- in the sense of making policies <clears throat> for be on the behalf of, of um, international capital investment. Because all these policies are made in order to lure capital investment from anywhere. Um, and so uh, human, human needs are just uh, forgotten, and everything is decided by the markets. Now, the markets, in this case, don't mean the lemonade stand. The markets mean where international investment uh, capital thinks it's can, it can get the largest profit. And now this way, you can have things that are perfectly useful and even profitable, but they'll go bust because the investment wants to go somewhere where they get more uh, of a profit. So this, in fact, means giving up your your choices and just letting this abstract, anonymous movement of capital decide everything. And this is very difficult because it ends up that your politicians are only, uh, they're, they're not deciding anything. Nobody's deciding anything. The markets are deciding things, and the politicians are just an instrument of that. And Macron is so very much an instrument of that that it's blatant. Hmm. Do you, uh, when you go to uh, you know, these public, because I assume you've been exposed to some of this, I, I uh, you know, you hear, uh, you know, you know, what 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 translates into to media's uh, a, a lot of violent confrontations but in terms of where you've uh, you know areas you've traveled you, know, you mentioned public squares and whatnot uh, I guess uh, as suppose coffee shops what 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 do the, uh, the do, do these discussions look like I assume they're very uh, are they heated are they fairly no, casual? no they're I mean, the discussions tend to be very friendly uh, you, you see uh the, the this movement is obviously. I mean, the, the main defense of the Macron government, of Macron personally, because it's really against him. The main uh, defense is to manage to misrepresent it to the public and to the world. Now, this representation takes place with a lot of verbal insults, which are untrue, and it also takes the part of uh, publicizing scenes of violence. But the scenes of violence were almost exclusively caused not by the the gilets jaunes, but by the same uh, sort of hoodlums or vandals that come in and smash in every demonstration that they can. They they have nothing to do with the the, uh, gilets jaunes, but they... The second round, especially, the police didn't stop them, let them burn cars, cause all kinds of damage, and then the photos of this damage are used to say, aha, the Julie Jones are so violent. But it, in fact, it's a very peaceful 
movement, and it has had terrible injuries to people. I mean, I, there's a young woman named Fiona, for example, who's had an eye uh, 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 shot out by a, a flashball. They, they're firing directly at, at these people who haven't done anything, and that's a kind of a provocation. But you've had, like, there's a, in Toulouse, there's a, uh, the police fired these things, which are supposed to be non-lethal, but they can wound people very heavily. And there's a man in Toulouse a, uh, who actually is a fireman, and he's in a coma after being um, hit by a police uh, missile. Now, normally, you know, when a fireman, that's a her public servant, is wounded, why the everybody rushes to his side and the government says this is terrible. Not a word. The government says nothing about all the casualties that have been caused by, by the uh, the missiles fired at them directly in their ha- faces, um, non-lethal, but they knock out eyes, pick up people who lost their hands, others have had very bad injuries. And there's not a word about this. No, no condolences whatsoever. Uh, Diana, I'm reminded of back in 2010, I participated in and, and covered the uh, the G20 protests in Toronto, and uh, you know, in spite of a lot of the. Uh, the, the, the critical uh, perspectives and a lot of peaceful demonstrators, what dominated the headlines was the, uh, the role of the, uh, the, I guess, the black bloc in uh, you know, creating a lot of havoc and, and damage and, and whatnot. And that, that's, that basically became the headline. Um, so I, you know, is the, uh, the, the, that, 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 the, the way the media has captured that and, uh, in, in France, is, is it working in terms of uh, undermining the appeal of the Yellow Vests movement. No, but it does abroad. Um, maybe they'll get NATO to come in, you know. Uh, no, it's not working. It's, in fact, people are very outraged. Um, but, uh, but, you see, the thing is that they say that, and then, um, and then it's picked up by the foreign press. You see, the foreign press mostly echoes what the national press says and shows. So, uh, I mean, the mainstream, right? Um, there, there's, uh, uh, when, when some, some journalist hears something outrageous, then it's picked up in, by, an, by the New Republic, for instance, because that's one who does it, and, and, uh, and repeats the lies that somebody has uttered here. And, um, but, but since people are here, they see that that's not true. Now, uh, Diana, the when when you hear the term "yellow vests," one thinks of the colored revolutions, like the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, uh, which have been influenced by outside forces. Uh, what assurances are there that this movement is a genuine grassroots movement and and not something that's being manufactured or manipulated? Well, I mean, anybody who says that needs to come up with a proof. You can never prove that nothing that something doesn't exist. Right. Mm. I I mean, this is this this is the kind of paranoia that is is going around, especially on the left. Um, uh, There's no sign. There's no force here that could do that. That could 
manufacture this, you see. I mean, you'd have to say, well, who's doing it? Come up with a hypothesis. Who's doing it? There's nobody here. The, the political scene is very discouraged. People, the parties, people are fed up with all of them. Uh, there just isn't a force that could, that could invent this. Now, of course, the color revolutions were largely invented, or at least they were very heavily uh, supported from outside, from the National Endowment for Democracy, paid for by the U.S. taxpayers, or by George Soros, so they're working hand-in-hand hand in order to overthrow governments the U.S. doesn't like. Well, that's not the case here. Here, something is really happening. And that fact that arouses suspicion, it's just that the suspicion is misplaced. That's not the case here. I say, I say anybody who, who wants to make that accusation has to be a little more precise. Who do they think is doing it? Okay. Um, so could you talk then uh, uh, a little bit more about uh, the... Uh, the police tactics, and I know we've seen over the course of the last uh, nine weeks, uh, uh, the police and security forces, because I, I, I think that they've, I mean, they've got a large number of them, but are, are they not inviting uh, forces from outside of France to uh, participate in this? Uh, not that I know. To, no, no, no. I mean, uh, I, I I don't see how they could do that. I mean, um, uh, no, no, no. It's just, the, but the the police tactics have have really been, and I, you know, this comes from the top of the government. You can't. A lot of people like that. That like this girl named Fiona, this young woman who lost an eye. She made a very touching interview. She said she was a little bit annoyed with the policeman who fired the gun at her, but she realized it wasn't the fault of the police that they're there doing their job, and. Uh, so that's a very different attitude from the black box who consider the police their enemy and start fighting them, you see. There's there's no resemblance here between the... Um, these are just ordinary citizens who have problems. Um, but, uh, I mean, you, it, it's clear that uh, the, uh, the Macron government is, uh, you know, you trying to wage something of a counterinsurgency, which, you know, one of the tactics that's typically involved would be what you'd call agence provocateur. So, um... Well, actually, I haven't seen much of that. Uh, I I can expect that will come along, unless you call a black box type of people yeah. agent provocateur. Yes, I mean, there are some people who say, I mean, there are people who've taken a photograph of a policeman throwing a, a rock through a store window. Um... In other words, the, the certain branches of the police are, are paid to cause damage that can be attributed to to the gilets jaunes. But as far as um, infiltration of provocateurs, I haven't seen that yet. Um, I think that this is, takes the government completely by surprise, and they don't have uh, the personnel on hand for that. Um, but uh, I mean, anything is possible because. But you see, this this is this movement is really characterized by just normal people's common sense. Uh, they realize that the police are trying to what they're trying to do. They, they they catch on. I mean, these are not stupid people. These are ordinary, 
uh, normally intelligent people, and they're not that easily fooled or led this way or that way. And they're all very suspicious of leaders and politicians because they feel that all of them end up doing the same thing, and they just don't trust them. That's why they are going to try to develop um, uh, 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 their own movement. This is this is they. Everything says that this is in for the long haul. That they are meaning to keep at this and um, and figure out exactly how to how to uh, get their thoughts and demands across. And and that's why the referendum, since the referendum is an institutional idea, it has sort of become the the main demand. Um, because it it's, it sees it as an instrument to express themselves. It seems, yeah, you mentioned an instrument, and it seems like this Yellow Vest movement, the Gilets Jaunes, is a, a brand new way of organizing the working class. Uh, you know, the trade unions appear to have become irrelevant in this process in terms of uh, leadership. What does that say about traditional organizing, and, and what lessons can we you know, learn from it? Well, uh, yeah, that's a that's a big question. I would say this: the trade unions um, have have been. One thing it has to do with the with the transformation of the economy. Now, I wouldn't say that France is totally deindustrialized, de but relatively, it's deindustrialized. And you have to think back. I mean, when Karl Marx was the, the the point of the working class was when you had big factories full of workers and they could shut down pro- production and make the capitalists lose money. And that was an instrument of power. But you don't have that anymore because a lot of, of industry has been autom- automated. Uh, there aren't so many uh, groups of workers, and a lot of workers that have gone on strike are service workers. Well, they can go on strike in the trains or this or that, and who pays? Not the guy, you know, the, the, it's it's the people who, ordinary people traveling around who suffer, and um, and, and it doesn't, it doesn't uh, ruin capitalism particularly. And so, in fact, the working class is no longer to think of the working class in, in terms of factories is just to say, well, we've lost, right? <laughs> I mean, if the, law, if the left can only think of the working class in terms of uh, factories, they might as well pack up and go home, which is pretty much what they have done. Uh, but the working class, now it's all kinds of people. It's deli- somebody delivering the pizza. It, it's it's um, uh, uh, people taking care of old people and children. And, and so it's all kinds, of, it's scattered. The working class is scattered. And the idea, I think, from the top and from the capitalists is great. They'll never get together because they're scattered. And actually, they have gotten together, and that's quite remarkable because they are, there are more of them than of, fact, of the classical factory workers. Now, there are many more of them. And they're all, uh, if, if they're not necessarily... Uh, employees, but suppose they're a little shopkeeper. Well, the little shopkeeper is working for the bank because he had to make a huge loan uh, in order to open his shop, and he's really working for the bank. So uh, so the, the nature of capitalism has changed, and the movement corresponds to that extremely well. Hmm. Well, I'm reminded of uh, the Occupy Wall Street movement in the United States, which was 
event, which took off for a while, but it was eventually crushed. I, I think we can say. What um, what are your when you look at the yellow vest movement? What what are the prospects? Uh, is it going to be crushed like uh, Occupy Wall Street? Well, was, no, because look, Occupy Wall Street. Well, I mean, I'm I wasn't there, so you know more about that than I do. But as I understand, it was a lot of people who stopped everything and went and sat down in the squares or something like that. Um, but this is, to, to start with, this is every Saturday. So, you know, people can do their job and then go on Saturday. So um, th- that's different from regular strikes, too, because, you see, if you go on strike, then the workers get no pay, and then after a while they don't want to keep on going on strike because they're not getting any pay. But this type of working class um, c- can go once a week, and it's not losing anything much except, you know, uh, maybe a, a little bit but it's, it it so the very way it's structured of every week uh prepares it for a much longer haul than a than a strike that goes out to shut something down including one's own job for an indefinite period you see mm. but and and occupy i don't know because occupy was i i don't know for one thing i i i can't compare because i think they're very, very, very different. And you've got to realize that France is very, very different. Mm. And, uh, I mean, it annoys me because uh, I know that uh, the Anglo-Saxons, as they call them, the Brit- just don't understand France very well, and they don't understand um, the situation, and they're ready to, to suspect the worst. And that's something I want to say. I mean, I'm just outraged by all of these leftists who are searching around to see, oh, my goodness, you know, there's somebody who's racist. Um, uh, This is a left that has nothing to offer anymore but acts as an inquisitor, and every time there's a movement, their only interest is, oh, let's go and find out if there's a racist or homophobe or anti-Semitic or something like that. They just act like nothing but inquisitors and are unable to see the reality. Now, I think this is a much more national movement. I don't think Occupy was a national movement, but the United States is much bigger. So, you see, you, the comparison is very difficult mm-hmm. because France, you, you have these demonstrations all over the country. And uh, also, you, it's, it's, uh, it, there's, a, there, there's a, a, a French tradition of... of um, well, it's a myth. It's a myth about revolutions and all that. But it, it, it sometimes works in the sense that people think, well, you know, this is this is something for the French do, um, and uh, you you don't you don't have that in the United States or other places. Okay. Well, Diane, I think we're going to have to leave it there. But I want to thank you very much for sharing those insights with our audience. Well, you're very welcome. We've been speaking with Diana Johnstone. She is uh, a political writer based in Paris, and uh, she is a research associate of the Center for Research on Globalization. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. 
I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week. 